As you're finding your place there, I notice that no one is willing or wants to sit in the first two rows. <laughs> what is it about that? You think you're too close to me? You think I'm going to spit on you? Uh, all those who are watching us online, they only can see the first two rows. And so they think no one else is here except for Ricky, the worship team, and myself. But I promise you, the back edges and, and everything else is filled in. It's just these two rows that no one wants to sit in. So we have a bunch of back row Baptists here at Red Lane today. So... Uh, Luke chapter 3, I want to speak to the subject of confronted. Anybody like to be confronted? Anybody like confrontation? Any fighters out here this morning that you just like, you live, you, you eat and breathe for, for confrontation? Anyone would confess that? Josh, okay. We'll have a response time at the end of the service. You can come forward and we will pray with you and for you for your fighting spirit. Now, confrontation is, is probably never liked. Uh, except for a, a few in the world. Uh, it's something that we many times will want to shy away from. It's something that we would prefer not to get involved in. And, and yet confrontation is a natural part of life. I think it's part of, uh, of obviously living within the, the fallenness of humanity, that there's going to be disagreements on various issues. And sometimes those disagreements are, are minor. Sometimes they're major uh, disagreements that lead to major confrontations. But I think we could simply say that confrontations are normal and even a healthy part of what it means to live in this world. Here's the reason. Confrontations present to us opportunities for change. Confrontations present opportunities for us to think differently, to make a new decision. And yet, even though we may realize that, we shy away and we don't enjoy confrontation, which is understandable because of the tension there. Here's the definition of what a confrontation is. A confrontation is a hostile or argumentative meeting or situation between opposing parties or ideas. And so a confrontation forces the decision or a decision to, to move in an intentional direction. For this reason, we would rather classify ourselves as non-confrontational. We many times would prefer to, to, to be more passive rather than aggressive. And I don't mean aggressive in literally uh, we're going to throw our, uh, our gloves down and, and go to fight. And I'm not talking about that type of aggressiveness, but we, we would rather just kind of let things pass on because that's the easiest thing to do because confrontation is difficult. We would rather not have to make decisions that affect the futures of others. I mean, if you're in any leadership position whatsoever, you know that when you make a decision, it's not a decision that just affects you. It affects others, and that is a weight that is heavy to carry. And so we will oftentimes scrub responsibility and scrub uh, things that, decisions that we need to make that impact others and, and, and then instead pursue passiveness and and rather not be confrontational or deal with confrontational issues. And yet confrontations are inescapable. And I would even add this morning that confrontations are for our good. They're for the good of our lives, the good for others. For example, let me just give you three examples. You go to the doctor this week, you have an examination. Maybe it's just a routine examination. That doctor comes back in and begins to just outline the, the details of what the examination revealed. In that moment, there's a confrontation. You're confronted with the facts coming from the examination, which forces a decision to be made in response to those facts, right? That's a confrontation. Uh, you, you, um, you look into the mirror, for instance, and you don't like what you see any longer. In that moment, you're confronted with facts. I look in the mirror and I'm thinking, where did the hair go? I used to have black, lush, 
thick hair. I used to have so much hair in my head that I wanted to start losing it in my 20s. Man, do I regret that. I look in the mirror today, I'm thinking, that guy's not 43, he's 63. So there's a decision there. Do I get hair plugs or not? You go through the evaluation process at work. No one likes that. The supervisor doesn't like that process, and the employee does not like that process. But what happens in that evaluation process? You're presented with facts. You're presented with details, and those details, based upon the process and the conversations, force you to make a choice. Will I grow into these things, these, these, these ina inadequacies in my ability to work, or will I shrug them and continue to do what I've always been doing? These are just three simple examples. We could list myriads of others. So confrontations are a fact of life. Confrontations, in, in fact, have been a part of our lives from the very beginning of time. We see them on every page of scripture. For example, if you're reading through the Bible with us, let me just give you two examples that we've read in the last few days. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses, if you remember, is living out in the wilderness. He's been uh, living outside of God's purpose for his life for 40 years. He's married into a family. He's shepherding sheep. He's just living life. He's forgotten Egypt. He's forgotten his upbringing. He's forgotten living in Pharaoh's house until one day when God meets him in the burning bush, begins to speak to his life, and and in that moment, Moses is faced, he's confronted by God, and he's given a choice to make. God has heard the affliction of Israel. He's heard the cry of his people. And now he's confronting Moses and saying, you are the one who's going to go back and deliver my people. He's hearing facts. He's given details. And he's given a choice to make. Do I listen to God and go back or do I go back to shepherding? Exodus 14, Moses has been in Egypt. He has been confronting Pharaoh, and ten plagues have taken place, and Pharaoh has experienced all that God wanted him to experience. The, the land has been devastated. Moses and the people of Israel have been kicked out by Pharaoh. They're now moving toward the promised land. They're on the shores of the Red Sea, and God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he comes charging with what army he has left, 600 uh, um, chariots coming up on the people of, of Israel. They're on the banks of the Red Sea, and God tells Moses to part it, and they begin to walk across on dry land. And in that moment, Pharaoh is setting up on the hillside, watching this take place, knowing what has happened in just the last few weeks in Egypt, is faced with details about God and his power and a decision to make. And you know the story. He charges down after Israel into the Red Sea as it's parted on both sides. And when Israel gets to the banks of the other side, God implodes that water upon him. And so he's faced with a decision, and the decision he made led to his doom. Confrontations are a normal, healthy part of life. We see them in every facet of our lives. We see them on every page of Scripture. God... with what he wants us to see is we're confronted with our own sinfulness. We're left with the decision to make. And so we find this same sort of decision, this same sort of confrontation as we come to Luke chapter 3 as the public ministry of John the Baptist is launched. Uh, John was a
a decision, a choice for us to make. Will we follow God or will we not follow God? Look at Luke chapter 3. Let's begin in reading in verse 1. Luke tells us, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region and around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in, come, in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors... Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he shall burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. So as we've been working verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, what we saw at the end of chapter 2 was that Jesus uh, is increasing in stature and wisdom and, <coughs> excuse me, in favor. And then we move to chapter 3, and all of a sudden we see that John's ministry is being launched, and, and yet there's only six months difference between the ages of John and Jesus. And so what we see here is there's silence over the childhood and the young adult years of both John and Jesus. The only exception is what we've already looked at in Jesus when he was 12 years old, going to the temple with his family, and that whole situation there. Everything else has been silenced. So the only thing we can do to learn about their early days is to look at the birth narratives and the prophecies surrounding them and then kind of build a story around that. So what do we know about John? Well, we know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. In fact, even when Mary came to visit his mom Elizabeth, John in the womb of his mother leaps for joy. And so the Spirit of God was there present in John's life. We also know from the birth narratives that he was to be a Nazarite. He was not to take a strong drink or to eat anything unclean. He, we also know that he lived in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. 
And so Luke picks up in chapter 3 here, and he begins to give us some details about what was happening as John launched his ministry. And he begins by telling us that Tiberius Caesar was ruling the empire of Rome at that time. You look at that historical marker as well as the others that are laid out there, and we understand that it was around the, the time frame of A.D. 27 to A.D. 29. These names that are mentioned, Tiberius and Pontius, Pilate and, and Herod and Philip and, and Licinius, uh, these are names that are mentioned not just to give us coordinates on a timeline, but it's a really to express the, the dark ambiance of what the Roman Palestinian government situation really was. You also look at the religious names that he mentions. You got Annas and Caiaphas, right? The two high priests that we see in the, in the Gospels. Annas was the high priest from AD 6 to AD 15. And then after him, he had four sons that ruled in succession or were high priests in successive terms after Annas was. And then after those four sons, we come to Caiaphas, who is the son-in-law of Annas. And so what we have here is a dark, degenerate priesthood. I like how R. Kent Hughes speaks to this situation. He says, The mention of their priesthood as one indicates a serpentine nepotism and an evil concentration of power. So what Luke is doing here is that he's taking this dark political and religious backdrop and he's juxtaposing upon that what we see in verse 2, that the word of God came to John, not in Jerusalem, not among the religious leaders, not among the political readers, leaders, but it comes to John in the wilderness. As we continue to look at John's life, we look at what the other gospels tell us about who John was and what he looked like. What we see here is this is a classic inauguration of a prophet. He's called from the wilderness. He's dressed in funny clothes. He eats a radical diet. He, 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 he just, he's different all the way around. And so for the Jew in this day and age who knows the story of their people, they look at John, they hear John, and his very presence in the wilderness commands repentance. They understand this man speaks for God. This man is different than what we have right now. Luke tells us, that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance in verse 3. Now, we shouldn't understand this to mean that he called people to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. That's not what Luke is describing for us. No, what he's saying here is John called the people to acknowledge their sin and repent of it, and the acceptance of baptism was a vivid expression of, I have changed my ways of living, I have turned from that sin, and I'm identifying with the Lord. It's the same for us today. Baptism doesn't bring salvation. Baptism doesn't wash away our sins. It symbolizes the forgiveness of our sins. And so for those who would look at us and say, you Southern Baptists are just reading into John's baptism, your own theology, I would beg to differ. I believe what we see in church history is that everyone understood John's theology as he preached a baptism of repentance. Even Josephus, the early Jewish historian, not even a follower of Jesus, he's a Jew. He said this, and I quote, he, John, was a good man and extorted or exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety toward God, and so doing to join in baptism. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. It's not, this must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already 
thoroughly cleansed by right behavior. And so what Josephus is saying there is that the Jews and, and the believers, the followers of God, understood that baptism symbolized a turn from sin and a turn toward the Lord. Not a, it, it didn't bring that turning or that forgiveness coming from the Lord. And so John was a preacher. And he was a powerful preacher as we read on in this account. We learn that the anointing of the Spirit of God rested on him. It rested on his preaching. And so much so that great crowds came to listen and to sit under his teaching and to be baptized by him. You look at his style, though, and all preachers have a style, right? I mean, you probably love your favorite preacher that you listen to on the radio or the TV and maybe the Internet. And, and you're thinking, man, I wish that guy on the stage every Sunday could be like my preacher. We all have a style, and John has a style as well. And his style is pretty interesting, though. He only had one good sermon. He had one sugar stick sermon. That's the way we kind of talk in, in pastoral circles that, you know, if you're going to visit somewhere else, if you're going to preach at a conference, sometimes I'll joke with a guy, like, you're going to pull your sugar stick out? You know, your, your favorite sermon, the one you got memorized, you're going to pull that one out? That's sort of what John had. It wasn't his sugar stick necessarily, but he had one message. Repent, turn to the Lord. It was the gospel message. He was not clever. He was not cute. Instead, what we see in John is a bold, straightforward preacher. He was never satisfied with people just becoming more religious. He was never satisfied with building a crowd, never satisfied with pleasing the audience. He was concerned about lost sinners, finding forgiveness and new life in the Messiah. He wanted then to also see evidence of that faith, evidence of that repentance, and how they live from that moment on talks about how they should treat others, how they should deal justly, how they should be fair and integri have integrity. John's powerful preach preaching obviously brought fame. People began to wonder because the crowds were coming and lives were being changed. They began to wonder, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've been longing for and waiting for? Is this the one the prophets were speaking of? And so they begin to question and ask these, uh, the, these questions about John as they gathered in circles. John was not concerned about what people thought of him. He, I don't know if he understood this, but Jesus knew this of John. He, Jesus says that there was no one greater and there was no one greater than John. Past, present, or even future. He was one of those unique, powerful preachers. And yet, rather than relishing in the attention that he was getting, what we see in John is that he continued to point people to the Messiah. He was not about the crowds being pleased. He was about pointing people to Jesus and confronting them about their sin. In fact, as we begin continue to read, we see in verse 16 that he goes on to debase his own ministry to highlight the superiority of Christ's ministry. During those few years of public ministry, which is only a two or three, four years at the most, thousands of people responded in faith, turned to Jesus in repentance, all because of John's preaching. Their lives were radically changed. They weren't just religious people, though there were probably some. But there were people who radically turned to the Lord. But not everyone, which I find is interesting that the latter uh, three verses of what we read, not everyone who heard John preaching turned in faith and turned from their sin. Some rejected it. We see it in Herod. We see it in Herodias. Some rejected the message. They rejected the confrontation that they experienced with the gospel. And so what we learn here is that an encounter with the Lord is always coupled with the choice to make. Some will say yes to the Lord. Others will say no. But the choice is always there. So there's four things I want you to see, four truths about being confronted 
with the gospel. Number one, I want you to see this. The gospel's confrontation brings an awareness of God's presence. It brings an awareness of God's presence. We see here that the word of God came to John. We see the prophecy in Isaiah 40 there in Luke 4 or 3, 4 that, the, that John is preparing the way of the Lord. We see this picture of God's presence being involved as John is preaching. As he's preaching this message of repentance, the people are confronted with God's presence. See, they're not confronted with John. John's the voice John's the spokesman. John's the preacher. He's up on the hillside like I'm on a stage right here. But they're not hearing John. They're hearing the word of God. That's what a prophet is. And so when a preacher stands and he's preaching from the word of God, if he's true to the text, you're not hearing the voice of a man. You're hearing the voice of the spirit of God using the word of God to bring your heart into conformity to the gospel message. These people heard God's word as we see in verse 2. So here we learn that when a lost sinner is confronted with the gospel message, he or she is a made, made aware of God's presence. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be a middle-aged man sitting here. You could be a, a teenage girl. You could be a child. When you're under the word of God and the spirit of God is moving and speaking, you are confronted with the presence of God in your life. What do we know about that presence? Here's something I think we should know. It is a beautifully frightening experience beautifully frightening experience. Those two terms don't even make sense together. How can it be beautiful and at the same time frightening? It's because we see God for who he is and at the same time we see ourselves for who we are. And that's a frightful thing. It's a, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, going back to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when he's standing there before the burning bush, uh, God tells him, take the sandals off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. It, it would go on a couple verses later, and Moses wouldn't even look at God because the presence of God was so frightening and so glorious and so powerful. And I believe at the same time, he's seeing his own frailty and his humanity and his finiteness. You go to Isaiah chapter 6, and we see there the prophet Isaiah comes into this experience with God, and he sees the Lord in the throne room, his train of his robe, filling the temple. It's this beautiful presence, or this beautiful picture of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, if you will. And he says, I am lost, or some translations say, I am undone, I am unclean. He recognizes the grandeur of God and the lowliness of himself. It's beautifully frightening when we come into the presence of God. It's a situation where we experience uh, and stand in all of God's greatness and his grace, and yet we feel dread over our own sinfulness. And so for this reason, I believe Luke here is connecting John's preaching ministry there in verses 3 or 4, 5, and 6 to what Isaiah says in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, because John is the forerunner to the Messiah. So when people were confronted by his gospel preaching, they were confronted not with a man preaching, but they were confronted with the presence of a holy God. If you've ever given your life to Jesus, I think you can concur with this experience. I think back to the day when I gave my life to Jesus there in April of 97. It was the, the presence of God was in that place. I was at work. I was in the bathroom of a showroom at an electrical and plumbing supply house. Probably not the cleanest place in the world, but the presence of God was there. Why? Because God's word was wrapped up in my heart that day. 
First John 5, 12 had never been more real to me. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And in that moment, it was beautifully frightened as I understood God is glorious and great and gracious and good and yet wrathful against my sin. And I saw my sin and I saw the need I had for him. That brings us to a second truth. The gospel's confrontation brings an awareness of one's sin. Read here through John, or looking at John's life as we read in this passage, and we see that his preaching style was confrontational. He, you've probably heard people say, man, you really stepped on my toes today, preacher. That was John the Baptist. If you didn't come with steel-toed boots to the, to the countryside to hear John preach, you went away with no toenails on your toes that day, because that's the way he preached, straightforward, bold, in your face, not mean and hateful, but true to the text. John was confrontational. I believe as we read here, we see that he was not naive about the depravity of the human heart. Many people, Luke tells us, were coming to hear John preach. So what do we probably, what can we concur? What can we uh, uh, assume about those who were coming? I think it's safe to say that many of them were coming because they were truly seeking God. They, they were truly being drawn to the Lord. Their hearts were prepared. They were ready for the Messiah. They wanted to hear the gospel. They wanted to believe and exercise faith. They heard their need for forgiveness, and they wanted to turn from their sin. They were genuinely seeking the Lord. But also, I think we can also assume that there were others who came just because of religion. They understood it was probably the right thing to do. They, all, they understood that, that, that others believed and others had been changed and they saw that change. And, and so they thought, if I can get close to that, maybe it'll kind of rub off on me. Here's something that we need to understand. There's no grandchildren in Christianity. God has no grandchildren. He has sons and daughters. So you can't ride grandma's coattail. You can't ride your wife's coattail. You can't ride anyone's coattail into the kingdom of God. We have to be confronted with our sin, confronted with the gospel, and put our faith and trust in Jesus. And so there were people more than likely coming who were seeking the forms of worship rather than the object of worship. They wanted to associate themselves with godly people, thinking that perhaps they could be accepted. They presented a facade of belief, a facade of repentance, a, a facade of goodness. And yet these religion seekers John referred to as vipers. Look at verse 7. He says, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. John here is making sure his hearers understood that, that you can be religious and at the same time lost. You can know the stories of the Bible. Hey, you can quote scripture. You can participate in worship and still miss heaven. Amen. You may wonder, how can this be? I mean, how can you know the Bible and, and, and still miss heaven? I asked the Pharisees. They were really good at that. I mean, Jesus, when he talks to the Pharisees in the Gospels, he does not mince words with them. He calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Why? Because they had the form of worship, the form of godliness, but inwardly they had never been changed by the Lord. See, these practices are good, and we need to know the stories of the Bible. We need to be able to quote Scripture. We need to gather with the church and worship together and, and do all of this. But those things cannot and do not change your heart. That can only be changed by you by, through faith, trusting in Jesus and turning from your sin. And that's what he's making the point about to these people. We go on and we see from Paul in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We must acknowledge our sin. 
So John here is calling his audience to acknowledge their sin before a holy God. He even warned them in verse 9 saying, hey, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. In other words, God's not going to come and just cut off some branches. He's not just going to come and prune you a little bit. No, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, he will cut it down and destroy it. I think there's a twofold message there. I think one, he's speaking to the nation of Israel, right? that we need to turn to the Messiah or else God will be done with us. And then it's individual, uh, an individual message to each of us that we must deal, some, deal with the Lord. We must make a decision. The confrontation with the gospel demands a choice to be made. Paul goes on to say in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The ax is laid at the root. So this morning, as we think about that, as we're confronted with the text here, we just need to ask the question to ourselves. Am I aware of my own sin? Am I aware of what sin does in my life? Am I aware of how it separates me from God? As a follower of Jesus, am I aware of how my sin, as I continue to walk in it and not repent of it, am I aware of how it hinders my fellowship with the Lord, how it hinders my, my, my relationships in life? There's the third truth that I want you to see here, and that is the gospel's confrontation brings a desire for repentance. Look at that quotation there in verses 4 through 6. I, I believe Luke's linking of John's preaching to this prophecy from Isaiah 40 helps us understand repentance. Look at those verses. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his, way, his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is this? Well, these are the words coming from Isaiah. So 700 years before John lived, there's a prophecy coming from Isaiah saying that there's going to come a man who would clear a path and make things ready for the coming of the Messiah. So John is prophesied about 700 years before he arrives on the scene. And the prophecy says that the valleys are going to be filled, the mountains are going to be leveled, and the crooked places will be made straight. What in the world does that mean? We don't need to get tied up in the metaphor. Don't get boggled down in the metaphor. Here's what we don't want to understand it to mean. God is not in the landscaping business. I took a class in college, landscape architecture lecture. My friends and I, we skipped about as many days as you could possibly skip in that class. It was one of those classes you take to get credit, but you didn't care anything about. Now that I own a house for many years now and I do my own landscaping, it would have been nice to pay attention to that a little bit. God's not in the landscaping business. He doesn't own an earth mover. Number one, he doesn't need it. So he's not out there leveling the ground. What's happening here, what this is, what this metaphor is speaking of, is it's talking about the construction project taking place in a person's heart. It reflects the widespread custom that when an eminent ruler, let's just say Caesar is coming to visit a city, the citizens of that city would go out and they would build a wide, nice, level road so that the emperor or the ruler could come into the city with the pomp and dignity that that ruler deserved. And that's what it's speaking of here. As we experience the presence of God and we come in contact with our sinfulness, it naturally, well, I shouldn't say naturally, supernaturally, the Spirit of God is moving us to desire to cut out anything and everything that's going to hinder God's movement into our lives. It speaks of a desire to repent. 
John here is calling for readiness in the people. And readiness boils down to repentance from sin, which makes perfect sense. You see, when a sinner is confronted by the gospel message, when that, that sinner is made aware of God's presence in his or her life, that sinner understands that God is the emperor of the heart. He's the rightful ruler of that person's heart. And yet at the same time, that person understands that there's a ruler on the throne that doesn't belong there. So a decision has to be made to remove that ruler, which is sin and self, and to prepare the way for God, who is the emperor, to take his rightful place upon that human heart. Repentance is that action. It's simply saying, God, I've sinned before you, and now I turn from sin, and I'm turning toward you. And so what does it look like? Is repentance just simply saying a few words? No, it's not. Repentance is a change in action. It's a change in lifestyle. Repentance is a change in allegiance that leads to a change in direction. It speaks of contrition of the heart in response to the grace of God that brings a new way of living. And so John's hearers experience this sort of contrition. In verse 10, they come to him and they say, what shall we do? Notice what he says to him. He gives a general principle and three specific actions. Generally, he's basically saying, hey, there needs to be a change of life. You need to bear good fruit by changing the way you treat other people. That's what you see in verse 9. And then he gives these three specific examples. He says to the nameless crowd, if you've got two tunics, go give one to someone who doesn't have that, right? If they don't have food, take care of their needs. He says to the tax collector, don't take any more than you're legally obligated to take. You know the New Testament, the history of there, and the tax collectors. Matthew, who writes a gospel, was a tax collector. He was Levi before that. They would take the taxes they were obligated to take for Caesar, and then they would take more, and they became wealthy because of that. So they're plundering their own people. John says, hey, if you truly encountered God, and you understand your sinfulness, you've turned from that wickedness, make it, make it known, make it evident in the way you treat other people. And then the third specific was to the soldiers. They come and say, hey, what shall we do? And he says, don't extort money from people with false accusations and threats. Let your repentance be evident in how you lived your life. And so when we're confronted with the gospel, the believer ought to be moved to desire instant and ongoing repentance in his or her life. This is a desire to bear good fruits that match the repentance of one's life. Let me just give you some examples of that. If a man's made aware of his sexual sin, the Word of God has shown that to him. The Spirit of God has revealed that to him. How, how do you repent and how do you walk out of that? Well, that man wants to begin to uproot anything and everything in his life that speaks of and looks like sexual sin. You're going to run from pornography. You're going to run from adultery. You're going to run from anything that looks like sin. You're going to root that up out of your life. You're going to throw it, take it out of the darkness and throw it into the light and let the word of God kill it. If a woman is, becomes uh, aware of the fact that she's misusing money and not stewarding the resources God has given her, what is she do, going to do? She's going to begin to actively work to prioritize and allocate the finances God has entrusted to her and her life in a way that pleases and honors God. It means that I'm not just going to give lip service to my sin. I'm going to deal with it, understand it's forgiven, nailed to the cross, finalized to Tedelstai, it's over, and yet I've got to walk out of that also. Gospel confrontation leads us to desire repentance, ongoing repentance in our lives. But there's a fourth thing that I want us to see. 
As we're wanting to walk, as John Bunyan says in the Pilgrim's Progress, a life that is ever turning toward the celestial city, there are times and there are people, I should say, who do not receive the confrontation. They reject it. So the gospel's confrontation can be rejected by those who hear it. Look at verse 18. With many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. And so while it seems here that many people were coming out to see this radical preacher, guy who dressed funny, ate funny food, lived a radical lifestyle, yelled a lot, just great preacher, right? Just yelling, screaming. Uh, um, sometimes I've heard people say, it ain't preaching unless you're yelling. I'm not much of a yelling preacher, so maybe I don't preach. But what we see here is people are coming out. There are at least two people who do not believe on the Messiah. They don't believe the gospel. Those two people are Herod and Herodias. So it's interesting that while Herod rejected the message, Mark 6 verse 20 tells us that he was both perplexed and intrigued by John. You see, John had, or, or, or I should say, Herod had John arrested and put in prison. Herodias, his wife, talked him into that. She hated John. Why? Well, if you know the, the story there, Herodias used to be the wife of Philip, Herod's brother. And I don't know how it all transpired. I don't know how Herod took Philip's wife, but it was, a, it was an unlawful thing to do. It was taboo in that culture, and it was sinful before God. Herod knew this. And, and so rather than repenting, rather than turning from that, he continued to live in that lifestyle. But Herodias was going to have nothing to do with that. She hated John. She talks Herod into imprisoning him. And then finally, if you know the story, have Herod cut his head off. That's how John died. But before all that took place, Herod was trying to keep him alive. And, and the Bible tells us that Herod would bring him before him because he gladly loved to hear what John had to say. So he would give him opportunities to speak there in the courtyard. And each time, Herod would walk away perplexed and yet intrigued. It's interesting. As I think about that, I believe the message resonated with Herod on some level. Surely he knew his lifestyle was taboo and sinful. And yet John took God's word and applied it to that area of Herod's life. He understood his sin. But Herod was never willing to confess and to repent of that sin. Among many things, it would demand that he tell his wife their entire relationship was grounded and founded in sin, right? I mean, Herodias wants John dead. That conversation is not going to go well. So perhaps that's one of the reasons Herod never repented of his sin because of his wife. At the same time, Herod is a leader. He's a, he's a, um, he's a king, but he's set up by the emperor. He's a puppet king there in his area in, in Palestine. And so to declare that he is sinful would require that he humble himself before the people that he led. And Herod in his arrogance was never going to do that. And so these are some things and some reasons why he could never bring himself, no matter what, to repent and turn from his sin. So basically what Herod was doing was he was saying no to the Lord's invitation. In all of this, we see that a confrontation is good. It leads us to a choice to make. 
It's an opportunity for us to choose a new direction. It's an opportunity for us to follow the Lord. And so we need to ask ourselves some questions. Have, have I experienced the confrontation of the Lord? Have I been confronted with the gospel, been confronted with who Jesus is and my own sin? You see, in that moment when we are confronted like that, if you respond in faith that you will uh, uh, um, and have an overwhelming desire to repent, you will be changed. The gospel will change your life. Jesus will forgive your sins. And Paul tells us that the old things of our life will pass and new things will come. You're not the person you were before when you come to Jesus. But not everyone turns to him. I want to give you one last illustration. Luke chapter 18. We'll be there in a year or two. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the, the text, but if you just want to look at Luke 18, the rich young rulers who I want to refer to. If you remember the story, Jesus has been teaching and he's been sharing parables and, and, and talking about the kingdom. He's preaching the gospel is what he's doing. And so this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he asks the question, what do I need to do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And and Jesus goes on to tell him some of the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man responds like this, I've kept all of those since my childhood. In other words, he's saying this, I'm flawless. What else do I need to do? I'm religious. I know the Bible. I go to church. I hang around with good people, Christian people. I'm money. I give. I'm generous. What else do I need to do? And so Jesus, wanting this man to know that you can go through all the forms of worship and, and still not be in relationship with God, says, all right, go do this. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And the Bible tells us that he, because he was a very wealthy man, he was not willing to do that, and he went away very sad. You see, he was confronted by the Lord Jesus and his own sinfulness and was unwilling to recognize who he is and his own sin and because of that, he went away sad. The Bible calls us to recognize that. You see, none of us can ever say before Jesus, I've done all of that. I am sin, or I'm sinless. Paul, as quoted earlier, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It, we fall short of the holy standard of holy God. We can never attain that. It's like being a long jumper thinking, man, I can jump 20-something feet. And you go to the Grand Canyon, and you think you're going to jump the 10 miles to the other side, and you barely get past the little first rock down there at the bottom, 20 feet below you. We can't do it. So when we're confronted with the gospel, we need to understand it's the presence of God. We need to understand that there's sin in our life. We need to understand it requires repentance. We also need to understand there's a choice there that I can repent and follow God or I can reject that confrontation and continue to walk in my sin. And yet in that moment, you may feel good about yourself, but there's coming a day you will be very sad. You'll be very sad. The Bible's full of good news. Good news that confronts us. Good news that calls us to himself. I love how the Bible portrays how we've been made by God and for God, and he wants to know us, and yet there's bad news, and that is our own sinfulness that we're talking about here that the rich young ruler had and Herod had. That's who we are. We are sinful people separated from God, but if we'll understand God's love and grace and his desire to be in relationship with us and turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, the best news of all is that he will forgive and heal the broken spaces of our lives. Amen? Many of you this morning online and here in this room, you've experienced that. You could give testimony to that. Some of you need to experience that today. 
But even as Christians, hey, any Christians out there struggle with sin? I'll raise, my, I'll raise both hands. I'll confess for you people. Sin is an ongoing battle in the human life. It's an ongoing battle. Pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. What I want to do every single day as I get before the Lord is I want His Word and His presence to confront me and draw me closer to Him. And as I'm being drawn closer to Him, I'm forsaking myself and my, 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 my ability to, to do things on my own. My own... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? I'm trying to say satisfaction, but that's not the right. Sufficiency, that's the word I'm trying to say. I want to forsake my own sufficiency because I am not sufficient. Let's pray. This morning, God's speaking to your life. I don't know what he's saying, but I believe he's speaking to your life. He's confronting you with a choice to make. What choice do you need to make, and will you make the right one? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your call upon our life. God, we thank you for those who heard John preach the gospel and were drawn to you through faith and repentance. And Lord, you radically changed their lives. We thank you for the example of Herod and Herodias who at the same time heard the gospel, heard the same message and chose to reject it and hold on to their sin. God, your word tells us that is a dangerous and foolish decision. This morning, I pray that we would run to you God, I pray for believers in this room, those who are watching us online, that we would run to you as we're confronted with your word and your spirit, that we would run to you, run to you in faith and repentance. God, we want to know you and for you to know us. Lord, help us to loosen our grips on the things of this world and grab firmly to the things of God. I pray for those, Lord, who need Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, some perhaps are trying to figure out what this Christian thing's all about. Pray, Lord, that you, through the movement of your spirit, would help them to understand the truth of the gospel, how much you love them, how much you care for them, and God, that you're drawing them to yourself. May they respond with faith and with repentance of sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.